Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai. And this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has shattered the precarious geopolitical balance in Eastern Europe. Yet the ripple effects from the conflict extend far beyond that region. In the Middle East, regional leaders have been wary of explicitly taking sides, trying to find a delicate balance in a war that, to the region, can seem far away. Today I'm joined by Lydia Wilson, our culture editor at New Lines, who is currently in Amman, Jordan, to try and understand how the Middle East has dealt with the consequences of the Ukraine invasion. Lydia, welcome. Hello. What is it like watching everything in Ukraine unfold from Jordan? Well, to be honest, it's a little bit more distant uh, than what it was like when I was back in the UK. Uh, There's a lot going on regionally, you know, and so there's a lot more attention on that. This last few days alone have seen a lot of official visits from Israeli politicians to to visit the king here. Um, And of course, Israel has seen a sharp rise in in violence. They've had three deadly attacks in just one week. One at least has been claimed by ISIS. And so there are other more immediate concerns that are really dominating much more than Ukraine. Hmm. Does it feel like it's far away or does it feel like it's something that has an urgency to it that could impact on Jordan? It feels pretty far away in itself. There are further ramifications. You know, there's it's being interpreted, I'd say, through through the lens of the Arab world. And there are more reactions like, well, where was the world when it was happening in Syria or Yemen or Palestine, where's the attention? Where's the where's the compassion for us? Uh, so there's there are conversations around it, and there's a lot of reporting around it, but it's mm. not directly about the conflict, I would say, for the most part. Yeah, you do get that impression when you look at the Middle Eastern press and the Western press. You get the sense that the Western press looks at the Ukraine conflict as something that directly involves them, whereas the Middle East reporting on it is much more like this is something that is happening somewhere, and we're telling you about it. Yes, exactly. It's not a direct relevance. It's a it's a global affair, I would say. Is it your sense from the reaction of the people that you're talking to day to day that it's the same thing? I mean, I suppose there's a certain amount of human to human solidarity. Yeah, that is expressed. People do feel sorry for for the for the victims of the violence, for sure, in Ukraine. Uh, there's a certain sense of distance again, uh, a, a lot of, oh, who knows, or yeah, it's terrible, but I don't know anything about it, that kind of distance. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, there's this, there's this uh, more personal reaction of kind of what about us? And I've heard the word spite from two people. Mm. Like, I know this is wrong, but there's a certain spitefulness in my reaction. I'm glad somebody else is experiencing what we've been experiencing for so long. And of course, people are very used to this image of Russia, although although it's a complicated one. Uh, but Russia's been visiting atrocities on the Syrian people for for many years now, and that directly affects Jordanians because of their long border with Jordan, with Syria. Sorry, yeah. um, and that border security is very very important. There have been uh, various violent acts at the border over the last 10 years. And most recently, that's been to do with 
drug smuggling. Uh, there have been some quite deadly incidents between the border guards, the Jordanian border guards and, and smugglers trying to get drugs in in this last couple of weeks. And that's kind of affecting the dynamic as well of, of the thoughts of Russia because Russia is controlling so much of, of the Syrian dynamic. And of course, even if Ukraine to some degree is distant from Jordan, Russia certainly isn't. Russia is right next door in Syria and has been there for years. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people are waiting to see the impact of this war that in the media seems very clearly disastrous for Russia. Uh, and people are waiting to see how that's going to play out in Syria, how it's going to affect uh, uh, upcoming violence. Is it going to lessen? Is Russia's attempts at war going to, going to become weaker because of its experiences in Ukraine? Yeah, and that's quite an intriguing part of the story, because when you think about Russia's experience in Syria was an overwhelmingly positive one. Of course, there were differences. It was invited in at the behest of the regime, and it's not suffering in Syria in the same way that it suffers in Ukraine, because, of course, the West has not been providing weaponry and intelligence to the Syrians in the way that it has been providing to the Ukrainians. But still, however this war ends, if it doesn't end with an outright Russian victory, it will have an impact in Syria. Because if Syria, if Russia feels chastened by its experience in Ukraine, it might attempt to double down in Syria. Well, I'm not sure if Putin ever feels chastened, um, but he will be suffering in terms of his military capability um, in weaponry and morale. You can't underplay how important morale is um, and it really does seem that morale is collapsing. So that's going to have a knock-on effect. Um, mm. And his economy suffering, his, his, the, the, the view of the war his, at home, you know, the popular view is fast becoming more and more negative. And so I'm not sure, I'm not sure we can predict it, but it, it doesn't seem like it's going, to, it's going to result in more action in Syria. You think it might result in less action, that uh, Russia might pull out a little bit if it feels stretched thin by Ukraine and the consequences of Ukraine? Yeah, it's very stretched thin. And also there's an international reaction this time, and we're not sure how that's going to play out. Um, much more attention at the UN and in The Hague, people are talking already about war crimes trials. That hasn't happened with all the atrocities he's committed in Syria. Yeah. And so finally, there might be just a little bit more accountability that'll force his hand to some extent. And there are other countries as well that are considering what they might do depending on the outcome of the Russia-Ukraine war. If you think about Turkey, for example, if the Russians take over much of the Black Sea region, then that has a knock-on impact on Turkey, which at the moment seems to be trying to play this peacekeeping role in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. But at the same time, it has this strange relationship with Russia when it comes to northern Syria. Well, I think that is going to be a very common problem that lots of countries around the world are going to be facing because there is so much interdependency now and there are very fine lines to be walking in terms of allyship um you know we're not so much a bilateral world anymore i was thinking about that uh that african proverb i mean probably isn't an african proverb but that expression that when elephants fight it's the grass that gets trampled and to some degree that's what the eventual response in the Middle East might be, because you already have a situation where the US and the West is having this rivalry with the Russians in the Middle East, but the theater of that rivalry appears now to have moved to Ukraine. 
And at some point, it might well move back to the Middle East. Yes, exactly. And I'm sure this is something that all Middle Eastern states are considering, how to balance these very tricky rivalries and also potentially gain some advantage in the long term. And earlier, I spoke to Suha Ma'aya'a, a freelance journalist based here in Amman. Jordan's government has good relations with both America and Russia. So I began by asking her how the Jordanian government has so far balanced these relationships in its response to Ukraine. So this crisis puts the Jordanian government in quite a difficult position, doesn't it? Well, definitely. I mean, uh, Jordan is caught in a tight spot. It's a key U.S. ally, and it also has close ties with Russia. So it will be difficult for Jordan to take sides. It's trying to maintain a neutral position. Uh, it has voted in favor of a UN resolution, stressing the sovereignty of states and their territorial integrity. But still, Jordan fell short of condemning Russia's use of force explicitly. And, um, you know, as a result of Russia's involvement in the war in Syria, Russia became an important strategic partner for Jordan, particularly after the de-escalation agreement in the southwest of Syria in 2017. And this was signed between Russia and the U.S., and it was intended to halt the fighting between the uh, Syrian government and rebel forces and to keep Hezbollah away from Jordan's borders. So now Jordan is fretting that Iran and its proxies will further strengthen their role in southern Syria as a result, uh, I mean, as Russia is currently bogged down in Ukraine. Yeah, and we've got, we're seeing different problems at the border at the moment, aren't we? Oh, definitely. You mean the border with, uh, with, with Syria? With Syria, yeah. Yes. Um, now, I mean, uh, Jordan shares a 360-kilometer border with Syria, and unfortunately, Drug trafficking from Syria has increased uh, recently to unprecedented levels. And uh, Jordan's attempts to cooperate with the Syrian regime to stem the flow of drugs seems to have fallen on deaf ears. And this has prompted Jordan recently to change the rules of engagement, uh, to shoot without prior warning after two officers were killed by smugglers in January this year. Yeah, we're seeing different types of violence at the border of Syria. I mean... That's one of the major ways it, Russia has has um, in, has been a part of this region in the past few years, obviously. And of course, we've also got what you've already mentioned is the tricky situation with Iran. Now, Jordan's treading that very difficult line, as you say, between the US and Russia. Yes. But we've also got new negotiations going on with Iran. Yes. And so, yeah, how do you see those ties with the US um, so developing with Jordan at the moment? So, yeah, that's why it's difficult for Jordan to take sides uh, in this war, you know. Um, the U.S. is now working to renew the nuclear deal with Iran. So Jordan also fears that it will empower Iran and the U.S. will be less engaged in the region, particularly after its withdrawal from Afghanistan. And so Jordan still, still uh, needs to maintain its ties with Russia to help with the border security as well. How do you see them treading that line? How successful do you think they've been so far? Well, um, it's difficult to tell, but all I know is that Jordan is struggling and it's weighing its foreign policy options. You know, at the same time, uh, Jordan cannot, cannot risk jeopardizing its ties with the U.S. Mm. It has close ties with the U.S., but uh, they suffered under the uh, Trump administration because of his Middle East um, policies which Jordan saw as a threat to its national security. And uh, Jordan back then saw its regional role as an interlocutor 
in the Middle East diminished because it was largely ignored by the Trump administration since it forged uh, closer ties with the Gulf states, which led to the signing of the Abraham Accords and uh, normalized ties between them and Israel. Yeah, yeah. So when Biden became president, Jordan breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because, you know, Biden supports the two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which Jordan advocates, and uh, Jordan's special role as a custodian of the Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem. Mm. Mm. And so that dynamic has changed quite radically since since Biden came in. Yeah, it's a relief for Jordan. So it's like a honeymoon phase mm. for Jordan. Mm. And of course, you know, that the United States is Jordan's single largest provider of bilateral assistance. Yes. And most recently, um, Congress has approved a new aid package for Jordan, estimated at uh, 1.6 or more uh, billion dollars. Mm. And, you know, both countries cooperate on regional security matters and counterterrorism. And there are also um, 3,000 US troops stationed in Jordan. So, yes, the Jordanian government is treading a very tricky line there. But how do you think this is playing out on the street in terms of perceptions of what Russia is doing in Ukraine at the moment? Russia is viewed favorably in Jordan. In fact, there was a survey conducted in October which showed that uh, 65% of Jordanians wanted Russia to assume a larger role in the region. Besides, because of the US support to Israel, Many Jordanians perceive Putin as someone who is defying U.S. hegemony in the region. Uh, people's support to Russia stems from their feelings of frustration with Western policies towards the region's woes, ranging you know, from Syria to Iraq, Yemen, and particularly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I even saw disturbing posts on social media, with one analyst saying, let the Ukrainians taste how the children in Russia suffered from Israel's bombings. Oh, so there's a certain... Yeah. definite support for Russia's actions now. Yes, in fact, there is. Uh, but I cannot gauge that level of support. But mm. I have seen this uh, in social media, yeah. social media outlets. So ba basically, there is a common feeling. Uh, I'd even call it a deep emotion that Russia is a champion because it is standing up to America because of the unlimited support America gives to Israel. There's a tendency for people in the region to blame the West for all its woes, going back to a colonial narrative. And so against this feeling, Russia can appear as the torchbearer defending the underdog. Right. So it's more about an anti-Western feeling than a pro-Russian feeling. Exactly. Exactly. Right. You're describing a broader support for Russia going, going back way be, before the, um, the Ukraine invasion. And then with the violence that we're seeing in Ukraine, you there's still a certain level of support for Russian action. But at the same time, there is a sympathy, right? There's a sympathy for the victims. Yeah, depending. Yes, there, of course there is. There is, yes. But not as much as I would have liked personally to see it. Yeah, yeah. Because people would often mention, look at what, look what happened in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Look at the Syrians. Mm -hmm. That's why they always compare the... Um, atrocities that they are facing and that they're not getting international media attention or western support so it's along these lines right not necessarily because they do not sympathize with ukrainians as people or as human beings it's because of the atrocities and because they didn't get enough support more attention so do you think then some of the feelings about the about this this most recent conflict is actually bound up in the hypocrisy 
of the West. It's not so much about Russia's role, America's role, but it's actually about how the press have covered it so that we're seeing exactly the same actions in Ukraine as Russia have been doing in, in Syria for years. Yes, in fact, it, it has in part, it has to do with it because, uh, you know, for example, um, Putin became a war criminal when uh, during the war in Ukraine, but not when it came to Syria. And look how many people were killed and how like millions were displaced. So Arabs feel that there is a, a hypocrisy when it comes to the West. Yes, in the press, but also in the politics, right? Yes. Uh, because we're seeing a very different attitude playing out also to refugees. Oh, of course, of course. Especially the ones who are stranded on the border with uh, Poland. But it doesn't mean that we can... We cannot sympathize with the Ukrainians. People shouldn't sympathize, but they're humans after all. Yeah, yeah. But then also, um, as a freelance journalist in the Middle East yourself, who often writes for international media, um, I wondered if you'd personally noticed the effects of that double standard that we're talking about for, for your own work. Um, and I'm asking because there, there are freelancers who, after Trump was elected, um, were basically forced to quit because America was no longer interested in the region, so there just wasn't the same amount of work available. Is that sort of thing happening now with the Ukraine invasion? Are editors now less interested about stories from the Middle East? I mean, even before the war, there was less interest in the Middle East. I, I've been noticing this in the past few years. I mean, uh, even with the, with the corona, with corona I've, been, I've been noticing this. There's less, uh, less interest. Right. Less interest in U.S. papers in the Middle East, but not, I mean, when it comes to regional papers, the issue is different. I mean, with the U.S., there has to be like a U.S. angle or a U.S. element in order to have something published. And, and also, of course, for like big newspapers, they're interested in uh, big stories. In, and that was... Um... Arab Spring, I suppose. Like Arab Spring, like when we had like the Royal Rift or when we have uh, terrorist attacks, God forbid, of course. <laughs> yes. yes, but it has to be those sorts of things. Oh, so that's not a, a feature of Ukraine then? Yes. You haven't noticed any, any But of course now, because it's new, it takes precedence now because it's something new. But it also, if you feel like uh, there's not much focus on Syria or Yemen. Yeah. So if the war in Ukraine goes on much longer, what do you think the long-term effects um, for Jordan or, or the region are going to be? Well, definitely Jordan is really concerned about this, um, especially when it comes to food security, um, wheat. Uh, while Jordan imports most of its wheat from Romania, in, in the short term, Jordan might not be impacted. But as other countries who depend on Ukrainian wheat look for alternative markets, I mean, the prices of wheat will soar, and this will make it more expensive for Jordan to import. Um, as you have seen and read for sure that bread is an important food staple in, yeah. in the region and in Jordan, of course. It's partially subsidized by the government by 20% um, per kilo. So in the past, in 1989 and in 1996, we had bread riots mm -hmm. in the south of the country uh, when the government lifted subsidies. And we've seen this in other Arab countries where protests uh, took are, are currently taking place. So for now, um, the government um, has sought to allay public fears and it said that the prices of bread will not go up, even if the prices of wheat increases. It also said that it has enough supplies uh, of wheat that would last the country for 13 months. Huh. 
But I want to say that even before the war in Ukraine, the prices of goods have risen as a result of the increase in the global food and oil prices. And besides, um, inflation is expected to accelerate because of the war in Ukraine. So we have already seen the um, prices of cooking oil and, um, and dairy products, already they went up. Uh, and the price hikes come at a time Jordan is already facing domestic challenges. Oh, I have to mention that we're also expecting uh, price hikes in uh, electricity next month. Um, so, I mean, the challenges, they come at a very challenging time for Jordan uh, because the economy is suffering and uh, we have entrenched corruption and there's a crackdown on free speech. And the economy was already suffering before, before the COVID-19 pandemic hit Jordan. So we now have like soaring poverty and unemployment almost 50% among the youth. In total, it's about 24%. But I mean, among the youth, it's one of the highest rates in the region. And Jordan has a young population. At least 60% are under the age of 30. So you're seeing all of these very structural long-term effects being, being accentuated with effects from Ukraine. Yes, in part, yes. They Do could. you worry about that then, the, about a longer, a longer conflict? Do you worry for Jordan? Yes, yes, of course, especially when it comes to the economy mm. and, uh, you know, the lack of opportunities, the social, economic injustices, poverty, unemployment. All these reasons may lead to unrest if such grievances are unaddressed. So Hader mentioned the discrepancy and the difference between the reporting and the political response that the West has had to Ukraine versus the response to the Syrian conflict and other conflicts in the region. She was pointing out that Putin became a war criminal when he attacked Ukraine, but when he killed Syrian civilians, attacked Syrian infrastructure, attacked Syrian hospitals, he wasn't a war criminal. Well, absolutely. That kind of hypocrisy is is being talked about very widely, I think, in media and just in normal conversation here in Jordan, um, just the, the the qualitative difference in how people have come together in a very united way, very, mm. very unconditional support to Ukraine politically, uh, in the fundraising, in the ordinary people across Europe opening their doors to refugees, um, yeah. Whereas that's that has never been the case to refugees from from the Middle East or Afghanistan, say. Yeah, I mean, I was very intrigued by it. I was I was watching something where a a I mean, a civilian was talking on a radio show about why he couldn't get Ukrainian refugees into the country so that he could sponsor them. And he was very annoyed about it. He was saying, you know, I really want to help. Why are they making it so difficult to let the refugees in? We just want to help them. And I thought that same kind of energy would have been very welcome for Syrian refugees, Afghan refugees, as you said. Mm. Um, to some degree, of course, you have some sympathy because there are, of course, there are the cultural similarities. But then also, it's on the on the European continent. It feels like a European war. It's happening right around them. Yes, and we always respond more to, to things that feel closer to us. Of course we do. But equally, I guess you could see why, from the perspective of the Jordanians you were saying earlier, that it feels as if all of this sympathy that is being mustered so quickly, not even a small percentage of that was mustered over the, the multiple wars of the region over the past 20, 30 years. 
And it's not just that, it's that the outrages in Ukraine have already happened so many times. It's it's as if Russia had, had practiced in Syria first, right? So mm. there's yeah, something yeah, yeah. universally disgusting about bombing a hospital. And yet he'd been doing that in Syria for years. Yeah. And so... Yeah, yeah. Kareem Shaheen made this point in, in one of our newsletters that exactly a lot of the tactics yeah. that have been used, the bombing of hospitals, the double tap, where you attack somebody and then you wait a while until the rescuers come and then you attack again. Yeah. A lot of those things had been tried and perfected in Syria. Well, exactly. And if you have a moral outrage in Ukraine, where was that moral outrage when it was happening to other human beings, just not human yeah. beings in Europe? Yeah. But I was skeptical. I mean, you and I talked about this before when you first arrived in Jordan and you were talking about the experiences that you were having with people who were saying that, you know, they felt that it was it was a positive thing in a way that the West got a taste of wars. I was skeptical about that. I felt that there was that it probably wasn't like that from what I had been seeing online and the conversations I'd been having. And we had a little bit of a suggestion that that might have been right with a survey. Yes, really interesting uh, piece of research that actually it wasn't a survey. It was analyzing social media comments on Ukraine, which is a very good way of doing research because you're not actually asking the direct questions. You know, you're, you're mm. seeing what people are expressing spontaneously and you're analyzing those. So yeah. they looked at, um, at social media posts across the Arab world uh, concerning y Ukraine and the vast majority everywhere are neutral. It ranges between mm. 66 and 76 percent. Uh, Jordan's somewhere in, at the bottom of that. So 72 percent of people in Jordan are actually neutral. Yeah. They don't really have a position on this, pro-Russia or, or anti. Um, yeah. Yeah, sorry. It's, it's interesting when you look at it. I mean, I'm, I can see it now. So it says they analyzed 45 million conversations and engagement on social media in the past few weeks. And when you look at it, yeah, so the, the least neutral country is Qatar with 66% neutral, huge majority anyway. Um, the most neutral country is Egypt with 76%. Yeah. But it, there isn't really a, a political rhyme or reason to it. It seems very much it's just the people who feel neutral because Syria is somewhere there in the middle. And perhaps you wouldn't expect people in Syria to be necessarily uh, neutral about the war. They might, you know, they might favor the Russian side. They might dislike the Russian side. Well, absolutely. And then you've got Kuwait in there that was one of the few countries to be quite clear, politically speaking, quite clear um mm. ab about their position they they came out against russia um uh, and that's right the same percentage as syria that 70% neutrality so i'm yeah. guessing that it just doesn't make much of a difference to people's day-to-day -day lives i suppose well that that part is very intriguing because actually it may not feel like it but actually at some point it will make a big difference we saw how I was talking about food shortages and yeah. a possible lack of jobs the sort of knock on effect the weed crisis that the egyptians might have yeah. um these are all predictors for unrest and it could mean that the knock on impact of it is to stress the countries and then stress the politics and we haven't got much leeway uh in many of these countries a tiny stress could could be uh, a huge difference in the macro, especially yeah. um, economic. You know, these economies weren't that strong to begin with, but COVID has been a, a stressor already. It's two years worth of vastly reduced tourism revenues, um, multiple lockdown effects. People are already on the brink. Uh, poverty rising 
and all the indicators with that, uh, social violence, uh, drug use, suicide rates, all going up. And so yeah. this one small thing might, might prove to be disastrous. And of course, all of the issues that we've talked about previously with this, the impact of the Syrian conflict and the Syrian refugees, of course, the Palestinian issue, these issues, and of course, the ongoing economic crisis and political crisis in Lebanon, none of those have been resolved. So the Ukraine crisis comes along, yes. and even if it doesn't directly impact the Middle East today, in a few weeks, in a matter of weeks, it is likely to have an impact, just an additional stressor, as you're saying. Yes, exactly. And we're not even sure about how that is going to play out in terms of prices. Um, mm. You know, the, oh, the oil and, and gas, we don't really know what's going to happen to global supply. I mean, the Georgian government has reassured people about the bread issue, which we've seen historically again and again has been a, a, a real wedge or, or a spark issue, you know, it really has sparked off protests in many countries. Um, so I think the Jordan government have moved quite quickly on that uh, because they know how sensitive it is and said that there won't be a significant price raise. So I think, I think they're aware and I think they'll try and address it before it gets to be a crisis. Politically, though, the Jordanians have, has, have had a uh, their experience has been the microcosm, really, of other countries in the region where they've tried to really maintain quite a careful political line. You haven't seen the the siding with Russia. I mean, of course, only the Syrians have sided with Russia so openly. But most other countries have taken in the region have taken quite a cautious approach. Well, yes, they've got to balance the their allies. I mean... Somebody said to me the other day that Jordan was doomed to be stable because <laughs> that's what the entire international community needs from Jordan, not to be flourishing, not to be happy, not to be successful, not to be developed, stable. They mm. need to be that ally on the ground with a border with Israel, border with Syria, border with Saudi. They have to be stable. And so they have to maintain that kind of reputation and those relationships in order to keep receiving the aid and the help. There's a really interesting essay we're going to publish by Yasmin Mumuyanovic about this idea of stableocracy, the idea that what the West really wants from countries on Europe's periphery, particularly the Balkans, but other places actually, um, is this this stable, uh, that the, they remain stable, yeah. regardless of what happens politically, regardless of what happens in their societies, what really matters to Western powers is stability above anything else. And you see that, I think, very much played out in parts of the Middle East, and Jordan is definitely one of those. Stableocracy sounds like a really interesting conception. I look forward to the essay. I mean, it's, it's a similar pressure on governments all over the, all over the world, I would say. I mean, the, what I said about Jordan being doomed to stability, that's exactly the same as governments across the Middle East. I, and I spoke next to Dr. Ama Asabele, a professor at the University of Jordan and an expert on geopolitics. And I began by asking him how typical he felt the Jordanian approach to the situation was in comparison to the rest of the Middle East. So we spoke to the Jordanian journalist Suha Maaya earlier, and she said that Jordan has so far been walking a very delicate line between its close allies in the US and in Russia. Uh, Russia has become a vital partner for the Jordanians because of the war in Syria. Uh, and broadly speaking, that caution has been quite typical for countries in the whole region. And I say broadly because there's been some outliers. Uh, Syria is, of course, firmly in Russia's 
camp, whereas Kuwait was very forthright in condemning the invasion uh, and for obvious reasons, given the Gulf War and so on. But mostly Middle Eastern governments have chosen the same strategy as Jordan, right? Well, um, for sure, it's something strange a bit for these countries, uh, but we have also to realize that these countries um, started to think that there should be a change in dealing with the U.S. Uh, since Obama's time. And most of these countries, they felt a bit betrayed, let's say, uh, by the position of Americans after uh, their position in, in Egypt with Mubarak. And they felt that at that time, this narrative of untrusted ally that can leave you in the moment um, when you most need them is applied on, on the US of Obama. And I think this narrative um, developed, if you remember, of this, let's say, the anti-Arab Spring alliance that um, in a way was facing the US and the administration of Obama in trying to um, contain um, the demonstrations and the Arab Spring movement. And it developed later in uh, a change in Egypt, uh, the arrival of Sisi, the sponsorship of the Emiratis and the Saudis of the anti-Muslim Brotherhood. So these dynamics believe that at the end, the US was not the same so basically, these countries were facing the, the U.S. and, um, and its allies. Um, at, th- at that stage, it was anti-Arab Spring and containing these changes. They managed in Egypt. They managed also to block uh, things in, uh, in Tunisia today, in Syria before. That's why it explains why they sponsor Assad all in a sudden. So basically, we cannot see that it's the same historical lies with the U.S. There was an exception for them when Trump arrived, and they managed as well to have a new vision, a new relation with Trump based on economic pragmatism, interests, and a new vision that they called at that time the regional peace, Arab-Israeli peace. But then with the arrival of Biden's, we, in a way, resumed Obama's vision. We started to, or these countries started to feel that there is no, um, or the same, they don't enjoy the same privilege they used to have with Trump. So we went back to the same level of skepticism and this kind of untrust relation. In a way, the Russian issue comes in a moment where these countries in the past three, 10 years at least, been trying to develop a theory called a balanced alliances. Relation with Russia that for them proved to be a trusted ally because they put everything, even military intervention, to support Syria while the Americans never did for their historical lies. And at the same time, the issue of economic uh, interest with China. So if the American administration is surprised today, they should be surprised from their policies because this has been going for a while now. Now, the, the issue that I cannot see the Middle East far from the US, but still, I think there should be a kind of redefinition of this relation based on mutual interests and uh, a new strategy, an American strategy, to satisfy all those, let's say, contradicted allies. Because um, uh, even in the past, 
uh, five years, we had we witnessed also a Gulf crisis, and we witnessed a um, proxy war in Libya. We went, uh, like in, in in Egypt. So there was a dispute over mostly every file of the Middle East. So in order to satisfy all these protagonists, let's say it's not an easy mission. But the issue that today we have a global a crisis with the global dimensions but that includes everybody, I think it's the time that the American administration proves its capacity to re-engage with its older lies based on mutual interest and guarantee that those uh, allies at least stay um, in, in, in this alliance with the US. And so in terms of Ukraine and Russia and what's going on right now with that conflict, conflict. Um, do you think maybe the Jordanians are looking at that as more of a US, EU, Western problem? Well, look, the Jordanian, uh, we cannot apply the same theory of the Gulf countries on Jordan. Um, I think Jordan is purely an American ally. And the position of Jordan um, might not be surprising for those who understand that at the end we deal with Russia um, from, um, let's say, a de facto uh, vision, which means they arrived to Syria. Uh, they are on our borders. Um, we've been dealing with them for a while. We managed to do a kind of um, the center of observation where we included Russia and the US in Syria, which means like for us, like dealing with Russia is becoming obligatory because of the dynamics of the Syrian crisis. Syria. And yeah. I think the U.S. approved that um, and they understand that. But I don't think that Jordan can um, take, let's say, a political side pro-Russia. Um, yeah. It's a pure American ally country, totally dependent on the Americans politically, economically. And I guess um, maybe we stand on a line where we understand that we don't want to turn um, Jordan in a confrontation with Russia. You know why? Because simply having uh, serious threats coming from Syria today for a country like Jordan is a bit, in, in, in such moment, I think it's a bit delicate. So in a way, Jordan is taking this stance, I think, due to the, um, the expected consequences if this confrontation expands and Russians start to be more violent in different places in the world. Yeah, well, I mean, it is a very, very difficult balance. Um, but going back to what you were saying about the Gulf, the UAE's response has been a particularly interesting example just because it's got one of the 10 temporary seats on the UN Security Council. And so it has a little bit more of a direct influence than any other um, country, Gulf country at the moment. Um, and it, it abstained from voting on a res resolution condemning the invasion and afterwards made some very ambiguous pro-Russian-ish statements, even though it's supposedly a very strong Washington ally. What, what are you thinking about that situation? Well, the UAE is an exceptional case, I think, in this, in, in this particular moment. Like um, uh, with Biden being uh, the vice president, they had already disputes with the uh, 
with Obama administration over the Arab Spring and the way they were running um, the whole scene in the Middle East. Now, with Trump, they were very privileged and they even managed during the Gulf crisis to have pro-Emirati vision uh, with Trump. And let's remember that Trump adopted the Emirati vision of the Abraham Accords and the regional peace. And actually, he, when one of his speeches, he said that you visit Abu Dhabi, you visit Jerusalem via Abu Dhabi, like if Abu Dhabi was the center of the, of the attention of this region. Now, all in a sudden, this new administration came and gave less interest um, in, in, in this vision, the regional peace, Abraham Accord, less interest in engaging with the UAE and Saudi Arabia, but at the same time, more interest in engaging with Qatar. And we saw it during the withdrawal from Afghanistan, where Secretary of the State Blinken said that Qatar represents the diplomatic interests of the US in Afghanistan. So in a way, this means that the US became part of this kind of rivalry or competition within the Gulf. So it's expected to see the Emiratis trying to use this moment, make use of this moment to tell the Americans that I am not very happy of the way you are dealing with me. So in a way, what they are doing today is showing that they have an independent vision and that the U.S. should deal with them differently. So you think this is maybe the beginning of a broader realignment in the region? Well, I think the U.S. should do more at this moment. For sure, these countries know that they cannot be in alliance with a country under sanctions and, and, and then uh, face the whole world uh, on behalf of, uh, of Russia, but at the same time, everybody is trying to make use of this moment um, on a political and economic level. So um, the Saudis are making um, an important stance today with uh, OPEC Plus and the production of oil. And at the same time, we had a clear message from MBS to the American administration in his recent Atlantic interview where he said, if you don't want to talk to me, I have others who want to talk. Yeah. If you don't want to come to Saudi Arabia, we have big projects and others might come. So in a way, it is, I think, the task of this American administration to revise the whole policies that made even its historic allies think to adopt uh, such a policy in a way to detach themselves from the American um, vision in a very critical moment. And so I suppose that the conflict in Ukraine um, has exposed the differences between the Middle East and Europe at this point. You know, essentially, the Arabs don't really consider that this is their war, right? Yes, and if you see Arabs trying to compare that we had a lot of cases here and nobody reacted to that. So in a way, it's the time also to say, like, I'm not totally uh, affected by this kind of this war. So it's the first time that Europe is in the front line and facing the consequences of a war since the Second World War, which means like it's for the Arabs, it's also a chance to remind Europeans to compare and remind them of their positions regarding Arab problems. And if you see there's an, like an, a kind of um, uprising of the Palestinian issue again in the public Arab debate when they when you talk about the Ukrainian war trying to compare the European position and American position from the Ukrainian war to the Palestinian war and this is something I, I, I it's in the Arab psychology today that is the first time that they are a bit far from an ongoing crisis and where they are 
asked to take positions. And how do you see that playing out then? Uh, I think politically speaking, um, when it comes to realpolitik, uh, they have to take positions like according to the European American lines. But uh, on the popular level, uh, on a public debate, I think they will keep this narrative ongoing because it's for them, it's the first time that they can, they, they can tell uh, the West that look, I have also problems. I had war in Iraq, I had war in Syria, I had own war problems in, in Lebanon. Uh, I have a, a historic case in Palestine and still it's still going, but I never seen seriousness and seeing the West decisive to take actions. So I'd like to finish by thinking about this in more broad kind of historical terms. Um, a lot of people are calling this the beginning of a new Cold War. Now, I think that term has a slightly different resonance in the Middle East as compared to, you know, America or Europe, because for much of Asia, the cold part of the war wasn't really cold. It was pretty bloody a lot of the time. Do you agree with the new kind of Cold War framing? And if so, what does that mean for the Middle East in the coming years? Well, for sure, uh, this is a kind of, uh, we tend to call, uh, to find always uh, a name from the past to suit our present, like that's why we call it Cold War. But in reality, I think it's a new shaping of our world order, which means like, um, I cannot see it a problem with Ukraine itself, because the reactions of the West is so fast, so strong, in a way that redesigning or reshaping a kind of balance, political power and balance in the world, like don't forget that Russia is a member of Security Council with a veto uh, uh, yeah. and, and it is it has been like subject to such sanctions. So it's not a normal country. Um, and I think this will open for sure the door for uh, a kind of real alliance, building alliances and pushing um, based and this time, what is the difference? It's not based on ideological, ideological belief. It's today based on economic pragmatism, competition, which means that if you want to build a strong alliance, you have to give your people or your uh, allies interests. That's why the U.S. should today find a common, let's say, language that guarantee benefits for these countries. And if you see, the Saudis are not talking about this, the Soviets. Uh, they are talking about oil price. So it means there's no ideology behind that you mobilize like an Islamic ideology against a Soviet ideology or a communist ideology. It's the point is, I want to guarantee interests and economic benefits, which means today, this is the base of rebuilding alliances. So do you really think that Ukraine is a turning point in this way, or does it not change that much for the Middle East? For sure it is, because the Middle East is a receiver. Like this is an action on a global level, but it will have impacts everywhere even in these countries. And uh, let's not forget also that this is this event and this incident is coming in a moment, in a critical moment after two years of COVID with all the consequences, political and economic frustration, unemployment, inflation, social problems. So you just need a trigger today to mobilize these societies. So I guess from a side, like, 
Today, it's a big task for the governments as well to um, to try to contain the impacts of, of this crisis. And I guess it's not an easy issue uh, linking COVID to the Ukrainian issue. So from pandemic to war, I think uh, the impacts will be everywhere. Almer made an interesting point about how dealing with Russia has now become obligatory in the Middle East and everyone has to kind of figure out what their space is when it comes to dealing with Moscow. Actually, the history of Moscow, I think, over the past, let's say, seven years since 2015 has been really one of its increasing its footprint in the region, not merely in Syria, but increasing its relationship with Turkey, sending its Wagner group into various places in the region and beyond it. And I think now, to some degree, just as every country in the Middle East had to figure out where they were with Washington, they also now have to figure out where they are with Moscow. I think that's exactly right. And for all the people who kept asking why Russia investing so much in the war in Syria, well, now we can see very clearly the advantages. They are a geopolitical force that everybody has to reckon with. Yeah. And it might be even more so. I mean, we've talked already about the possibility that large parts of the Black Sea just become Russian territory, de facto Russian control. And if that happens, you have changed the calculations about how countries, large countries like Turkey, um, move within the sphere of them being part of NATO, having close relations with the West, but also now having to work with the Russians in northern Syria. It really has an impact on what the calculations are of countries north and south of the Levant. Well, yes, I mean... It just goes to show, doesn't it, that the world order isn't that stable, that there's, there it really is much more fragile than we might see from, from looking at the history since the Cold War and people talking about the end of history and looking at the international world order with the United Nations and all the rest of it. Actually, everything's to play for. Yeah, I wonder, actually, it's quite interesting when you say that they, it's not quite as, um, as stable as people thought it was. I wonder if the Western countries also have started to wonder if their relationships are quite as stable as they were. I mean, you look at the response that the Saudis and the UAE had when they were asked if they could pump more oil. And it really was a moment where you could see they weren't just reflexively going to side with the Americans. It was much more a calculation of where can we take political benefit from what's happening? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of um, negotiation and power plays going on. And I think the West is probably on the wrong foot with all of this, that there have been some really hard-baked assumptions about Western ascendancy, particularly since the end of the Cold War, and nothing can be taken for granted anymore. Yeah, I mean, the Ukraine war, I think even though there was you could predict that there would be some instability. I think it was quite a sudden event and a lot of countries, especially in the West, had to recalculate what they're going to do. And that obviously has a knock-on impact um, in the Middle East. Amr talked about the opportunities of realignment like this. And in some ways, it's not unlike what the Gaddafis and the Assads did in the 1990s and the 2000s, where you, you, you can see possibly large changes coming in the way that Middle Eastern countries relate to the superpower and the usurper in Russia. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of grabbing every opportunity for leverage they can, watching mm. shifting alliances and trying to insert themselves into the gaps that are created. It's absolutely an opportunity for realignment, I think.
Yeah. I mean, this is kind of what Anand Gopal said about multipolarity, that we're moving to this multipolar world. And the Middle East, in a way, the, the region is taking that to heart. And they are thinking first and foremost, particularly perhaps the smaller countries, what can we do to gain the most leverage? Even if the the Ukraine conflict turns out to be the absolute limit of Russia's ambitions, the very fact that such a large land war has happened, that creates the perception that further wars could happen, um, for example, with China in the future. Yeah, I think probably smaller countries have got more wary about that kind of picking sides approach. I think what Amma was talking about, and Suhar, in fact, about very delicately treading these lines, trying to balance opportunities and alignments and allyship. Uh, because if we think back to the first Gulf War, in fact, um, Jordan actually sided with Saddam Hussein, and it was it, it was a disaster. The, the Kuwait expelled all the Palestinians back to Jordan. Um, huge amounts of, of Palestinians arrived over the course of, of a few days. And that kind of picking sides turns out not to be so successful with regional relationships. So I think probably people are, are more wary of doing things like that now. That was the 1990s, though. I mean, it was the, the point at which it seemed as if um, American hegemony would never go away. And now, 30 years later, you know, you've had two failed wars. It looks like actually the superpower is retreating and smaller countries, Russia is hardly a smaller country, but I mean, compared to the, the military and political might of Western powers, it is relatively small. Even those countries are now able to, to do things, to actually make changes on the ground in a way that I think wouldn't have happened, certainly wouldn't have happened in the 1990s and perhaps even wouldn't have happened if you go back 10 years. Mm, yes, I think so. I think the Arab Spring and, and, and the case of Syria had a lot to do with that 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 fracturing. Um, and yeah, as Anand said, the multipolarity, there are many, many forces at play now. Some of them are smaller for sure, but it still complicates the, the whole geopolitical picture. Mm. It complicates also the narrative around Russia. I mean, when we talked at the very beginning of the podcast, we were talking about how, you know, now that you are in Jordan, you get the sense from some people that, not from a lot of people, but you, you said that they had an election and part of the uh, part of the spoiled ballots was that people wrote in the name of Putin. Yes. So there, and now of course, you know, maybe people are doing that as a little bit of a joke, but there's also part of it where you are making a political point. But I, and that point is related to the triumphalist narrative that you've had about Russia's involvement in Syria and about them saving the Assad regime. I wonder if that has now been compromised to a large degree, complicated, as you said. I think that is going to vary, and I think it's going to play out differently. I mean, there is there it, there is a tendency in Jordan to see uh, the the authoritarian, patriarchal, strong leaders as role models. That's come up in research again and again that I've observed. That if you ask people who their role models are and say, "Okay, not from not the Prophet Muhammad and nothing from your family," then people start turning to Saddam and Putin um, and Assad. Um, and so I think there is this admiration for Putin being strong and standing up for his country and those sorts of values. Uh, and also there's just the undeniable fact that he's standing up to America. As Suha said, um, it's, it's really the enemy's enemy going on here, that America is seen as this, this, unquestioning ally of Israel and and therefore supporting one of the biggest injustices in the region 
And anyone who stands up to that type of hegemony is to be applauded. Yeah, I mean, I do think you see the exact same narrative playing itself out across you know, leftist parts of the West. And it does feel very, very unfortunate, very sad for the Ukrainians, because the Ukrainians are fighting a war on their own. And in fact, what's happening is that the narrative is that it's being placed in the context of the American orbit. I think that's a really common pitfall in, in analysis coming from the West, that people tend to give very little agency to the to the smaller players. You know, Syrians never had any agency. It was always this geopolitical picture with Iran and America and Saudi and Russia. And there wasn't any sense that there were Syrians who wanted certain specific things. You know, there's there's yeah. just a lack of giving credence to locals, I, th yeah. I think. And, and we need to learn how, how to give more attention. As a, an aside, do you think that had an impact maybe on the way that the Syrian, the revolutionaries were perceived, especially at oh, the beginning? Absolutely. They were, they were so easily seen as stooges, as, as, as tools of the different superpowers. There was, there was a lack of interrogation about their actual aims, which certainly at the beginning was so, so modest. Mm. But no, they were either seen as kind of CIA stooges or, or, or Saudi stooges, Islamist stooges, whichever it was. Mm. They, yeah, I think we dismissed the revolution in, across the West far too quickly. What do you think then that means for Jordan's relationship with the United States, which is, you know, the, the relationship between the Jordanians and the Americans are very, very close relationship, one of the closest in the Middle East. Oh, well, it's as we say, it's a stableocracy. So I don't think that's going to change significantly. I mean, it's different from the view from the ground, um, because despite its very best efforts, huge amounts of money, lots of aid, lots of development programs, um, and lots of direct aid to the government. You know, America's poured money into this country, but just they can't shift its popularity ratings. It bumbles along at 13, 14, 15% normally. And that's because nothing can overcome their behavior towards Israel. They will always be seen as the champion of Israel, the extension of Israeli power in the region. And so I don't think any perception is going to be easy to shift. And then in a wider sense, in the wider Middle East, it feels like we might be entering a, a period of time where there are shifting alliances rapidly, the period of time where you can't exactly be sure on whose side a particular country is going to end up. Well, I don't think America's hegemony is going away. Of course, it's becoming more complicated, as we've discussed. And there are more powers, big and small. Uh, taking up more of the space. But I don't think Jordan's going to risk anything with America. Yeah, it's, a, it's a astonishing how the consequences of this war, which can seem very far away from where you are on the ground in Amman, the consequences of that war are actually going to reverberate across every capital in the Middle East. Absolutely. And for a long time to come, for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you to all our guests. Thank you to Lydia uh, in Amman. You can follow Suha on Twitter at Suha Maya and follow Armour at Armour Sibeli. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me and Lydia Wilson. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. 
Thank you all for joining us.